Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, after raising interest rates several notches in 2018, the Fed appears to be on the sidelines, uh, at least for the near term. So let's get a sense of what that means for the U.S. housing market. Let's bring on Logan Mohatshami. Logan is a senior loan officer at AMC Lending Group based in Irvine, California. So, Logan, thank you so much for joining us. So we do have the Fed on the sidelines here in the early part of 2019, but the bias continues to seem to be with an upward bias. How are the U.S. housing market, how is the housing market really dealing with this rate environment? Well, in this economic cycle, uh, whenever mortgage rates get to about 4.5% or higher, we see a slowdown in the housing market, mostly in the hot uh, coastal areas. But again, for this year, the trend looks like uh, existing home sales are going to be lower again, and new home sales uh, is really struggling right now. And, And I don't think the lower interest rates on the 30-year fix that we've gotten from last November to now is still good enough to drive sales for growth. So, Logan, where are we in terms of the average mortgage rate right now? Right now, you're looking still around 4.5%, 4.625. You know, it, it, it's nothing. The mortgage rate impacts the marginal home buyer. Yeah. The total principal interest tax inflation, all those you know, higher home prices, higher mortgage rates, and that's one thing that we I think we forgot about housing last year. Uh, nominal home prices were at all time highs last year. Mortgage rates were higher. In demand, we lost just roughly only 170,000 uh, existing home sales from the previous year. So housing actually held up considering all those uh, variable factors. Okay. So just looking forward, if you are expecting a slowdown, if you don't think that there's enough strength to sort of sustain uh, the momentum in the markets, where in, in the U.S. do you expect the most pronounced bouts of a slowdown and, and potentially decline in home values? New York, Seattle, California. And you could see that some of the homes that were bought, let's say, last March, April, and May, that might have been a part of a bidding process. Uh, it looks like to me that those homes on a year-over-year basis could be down. Uh, the Midwest, the South, uh, everywhere else should be okay. But if we look at the purchase application data right now, last year we were positive almost every single week except for six. We only had two real negative prints. Right now we've already had two negative prints for the year. It's not even Valentine's Day yet. So that data line is already showing you today that there's a little bit of softness. Now, it isn't going to be a big decline in existing home sales, but I haven't forecasted growth in existing home sales since 2016. So I'm expecting another year of slightly down sales, a little bit in- increase in inventory, but nothing too big on both fronts. What could cause the U.S. housing market to decline significantly more than you're anticipating and maybe the market market's anticipating? Is it simply the interest rate environment? The, if mortgage rates ever got to about 5.875%, I think that could create a noticeable decline in sales and a noticeable increase in inventory. This is for existing home sales. New home sales is always expensive. They're, 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 they have uh, more issues than the existing home sale market. But because demographics are about to get bigger and better for the housing market, I, I don't see a major decline in sales uh, anytime soon. But if mortgage rates did get up to 5.875%, and that basically takes us to the low level of the previous cycle, with real home prices where they are right now, you can see a noticeable decline. But for now, it's just going to be a slight decline for 2019, nothing too drastic, similar 
to what we saw in uh, 2018. So, Logan, talk, you mentioned the demographics here, and this, may, goes, this might go to a longer-term call on the housing markets. Give us a sense of how the demographics are playing into it. Are millennials buying houses, that type of thing? Millennials are the biggest home buyers in the world right now. I think that we, we don't ever focus on that. I think housing's uh, demand problem, or in some cases, some people think demand is in, should be stronger, is the move-up buyer is not there. People are staying in their homes longer. Uh, we might have gone from a five to seven time year time horizon for people staying in their homes to a 12 to 22 year. That will impact sales. But the biggest demographic patch we have in America right now are ages 25 to 31. The median first-time home buyer is 32. So I look at them as replacement buyers. I know a lot of people are you know, banking on this demographic boom for housing. I, I kind of have a different take on it. You have replacement buyers to come in. If you get a little bit more action than move-up buyers, then you could get a little bit more existing home sales. But I, you know, 5.5 million existing home sales might be the peak for this cycle, and that's not a bad thing. I think some people just have um, too much aggressive high forecasts for existing home sales, and they think this is bad or something's off. It's just this is, this is how the housing market is going to be for maybe another 10 years. Okay, so I guess that I'm trying to figure out, Logan, if you're expecting the coastal cities to see a decline in home values, how deep will it be given your forecast for mortgage rates will be? Mortgage rates should go even lower than what they are right now. I think I was one of the few people for 2019 that forecasted lower mortgage rates. So even if mortgage rates fall, it doesn't change my forecast any. And this is similar to what happened in 2014 as well. Mortgage rates were trending lower the entire year and sales were down, but still sales are, are holding up as uh, well. But for California, New York, and Seattle, um, even though inventory monthly supply isn't high, pricing will be an issue. So to me, we have to see how do sellers react if they don't get the price they want. You know, a few years ago, they just wouldn't sell their homes because they needed a certain price level to make sense because we just started the increase of home prices. Now, that's four years ago. We've got about near $26 trillion of equity out there. We have about $15 trillion of net equity for these home, home uh, owners. They might be willing to take a little bit lower prices just to move, the, move their home. So that, to me, can create year-over-year declines in some areas of California, Seattle, even Las Vegas, even in New York, because now they, they feel a little bit better. They have a little bit more equity. So if they have to cut their prices, they will, where four years ago that wasn't the case. So, Logan, how about on the new home supply? Are the Toll Brothers of the world, are they still buying homes, or are they pulled back? New home sales is much different. Sales have not gone anywhere for a while now, but um, that big spike we saw in new home sales for last month or for the month of November, kind of discount that. That marketplace is struggling. And until we see the 640,000 new home sale trends come back again, uh, don't look for housing starts to really grow aggressively. And, you know, Toll Brothers and these, these companies, uh, they sell to a very small market base. So you will find wealthy buyers for those products. Just the rate of growth of them is just not going to be the same. And this might be the case for a very long time if interest rates don't go lower. Every single housing cycle has had 2% lower interest rates to help boost demand. For that to happen, we need about a one and a quarter and two and a quarter 30-year fix. That means a 10-year yield has to go negative. I don't think that's going to happen. Longer term, the builders have to build cheaper homes or smaller homes to grow that base, especially at Toll Brothers. 
Yeah. Logan Motoshami, thank you so much for being with us. Love the perspective. Logan Motoshami is Senior Loan Officer for AMC Lending Group, uh, talking about what he is expecting on the coastal cities in particular with a slowdown of potential uh, declines in home values. Interesting, Paul, I thought also that he sees mortgage rates going lower from here, not higher from here. Uh, But that may not be enough to really juice the market in a way that the coastal cities need. Kind of compelling, especially at a time when people are still calling for higher rates. It hasn't been a particularly exciting year in, uh, frankly, broadly in markets on a day-to-day level. But if you look at returns, holy cow, credit has crushed it. High-yield bonds have returned nearly 5% so far year-to-date, being led by the riskiest of risky bonds. Joining us here to figure out how much longer this rally can continue, Peter Shear, head of macro strategy at Academy Securities based in Connecticut, but joining us here today in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. So, Peter... Are we sort of at the precipice of another sell-off, or could we see those 10% returns, 11% returns that some Wall Street analysts are calling for this year? You know, I think we could. I'm saying that bonds have wound up, we were talking about falling angels. They didn't go to hell, they wound up in purgatory. So I think we're stuck now. Some of the big total returns gone, and now you're going to have to live off of coupon return and kind of roll and carry. So it's going to be a little bit boring. What does that mean in terms of total return over 2019? So, you know, in high yield, you could add another 5 to 7% that way. So, okay, so you could get to a 10 to 12% return it kind of puts you right on high-yield bonds. Yeah, and on you know triple B bonds, you're going to be lower, but I think it'll still be a very nice positive return. We're not done yet, so I think you're supposed to keep in credit right now. So, Peter, given the rally that we've had in the credit markets this year, where are you in terms of the risk profile? Are you still out there looking for risk, or are you using the rally to kind of improve the credit quality of your portfolio? So we went kind of from raging bull and kind of it didn't matter to we're being a little bit more selective. What I find interesting right now in the market is I actually like the triple B sector. So the lowest end of investment grade, because I still think that's the part that was least you know loved. So there's still more room to buy it. I don't actually like single B. So the stuff above triple B, because I don't think they got the message that, hey, credit is bad. So the single A's are the companies that are going to do the M&A activity that are going to still do stock buybacks. And then weirdly, I also don't like the double B sector, which is the high end of high yield, partly because all this money's flowing in. So it's gone into the quote unquote, safe part of high yield, which is double B's. So I think you want to be a little bit cautious on high yield, kind of skew yourself a little bit more to triple B and fund managers to do that and even start looking at leverage loans again. All right. So a mild bull, not a raging bull, but a tempered bull, Peter Cheer, uh, with the expectation that high yield bonds could still return 10 to 12% so far this year. The question is, how long can it last? You know, and people talk about we're in the ninth inning. This has been a, a credit cycle that we're probably in the 23rd inning. Um, but I have to wonder uh, do you see more investors getting into credit via? credit default swaps via ETFs, via instruments that they can get out of very quickly. I think there's definitely more trading mentality. People want to look for what's the right hedge, how do we get out if we need to. And I think this isn't going to be driven as much by demand, but by lack of supply. I think we're going to see less than a trillion dollars of IG credit, which sounds like a lot, but that would be the least since 2011. You have about $700 billion of IG debt that matures this year. You're seeing tender offers in very large size by companies like Verizon and Budweiser. So I think this is going to be a limited supply, and people are 
companies are reacting. They're saying, woo, this was bad. The companies with a lot of debt got punished. Their stock price was really far down, whether you're Budweiser, GE, Newell Rubbermaid. So you're starting to see companies change that narrative. So I think you're going to see less and less debt available to buy. And that's where you'll get the squeeze, not because there's so much more new demand. So Peter, you mentioned you're assuming some risk still in the high yield sector. What are some of the sectors that you think are still attractive to you uh, right here, even after the rally? So we like anything kind of to do with liquid natural gas. We do believe that everything we're hearing out of D.C. is a trade deal is still likely to come, and it's going to be very heavy on China buying liquid natural gas as one of the products they'll agree to. There's a lot of buildup that's still necessary. So we see that area as something that is underappreciated. Some of the price, you know, some of the potential for deals priced in, I think people are going to be surprised just how powerful the deal is. So we like that sector. Autos at the other end is one we're still watching very closely. What we're trying to figure out is how effective they've been by the tariffs and trade war and how much is just saturation in terms of automobiles and what higher rates are doing to the consumers domestically and more of a saturation overseas. So autos are kind of there that we're taking a closer look at. What would have to happen to make you uh, not bullish anymore on credit? So I think, one, no sign of a trade deal. I think if we're not going to get a trade deal, we're going to have serious economic problems. The slowdown we're already seeing in China and Europe is going to get worse there and spread to here. So that would be one thing. The other is if companies quickly kind of forget about how bad it was in November, December, and start re-leveraging themselves, right? A big part of this is, you know, you're kind of looking management in the eyes and saying, are you going to behave? And to the extent that you believe management's going to behave, you want a long credit. If they start going back to the bad ways, you want well, to pull back. But to that point, Goldman Sachs put out a report uh, overnight where they basically said, we're no longer recommending that you invest in the shares of companies that are responsible and that are deleveraging. Go ahead and go toward those that have much worse balance sheets because the Fed's going to have your back. I think they're maybe premature on that. I want the ones that have worse balance sheets that are still deleveraging. I don't want to touch, again, some of those high-quality single-A companies that might decide to leverage themselves or do something that is punitive. But I think they're a bit early on that. I still want companies that are doing the right thing because I think the markets are going to be fickle. And if you do the wrong thing, you'll see big sell-offs in stocks again. Are there any sectors that you see a preponderance of companies doing the wrong thing that we should stay away from? No, I think uh, that was probably true September and October. Right now, most companies seem to be doing the right thing which is encouraging. All right, so going forward, you like credit. When do you see this turning? I mean, how, how long do people have before you start to see the risks building up again? I think you, at least six months, maybe a year, maybe longer. Do you think that there will be another credit crisis? And if so, what would cause it? I don't think there's gonna be another credit crisis because I don't see the leverage in the system or the trading system. In the financial crisis, there was everything was kind of interconnected. You know, one thing, not the other. There were products like CPDOs, which were constant proportion default obligations. There were LSSs, which were leveraged super senior. So everything was linked. And as soon as one part of the capital structure started getting in trouble, everything had to get sold. There was a lot of mark-to-market risk. I do think we can get bouts like we saw in December, where the ETFs in particular drive prices lower, but they can rebound quickly. There's just not liquidity, but I don't see people being forced out of the market. All right. So going forward, you don't see another credit crisis. So if people are going into credit right now, you don't you said that people do have a trading mentality, but it sounds like perhaps they shouldn't. Perhaps it should be more buy and hold. Yeah, I think you're supposed to pick the credits you like, stick with it, 
and that's how you're going to make your money. And if there is a bubble, I think the bubble is much more in terms of volatility selling. We see that in the equity markets, but do you know, all these ETFs really generate a lot of options to activity around it. HYG, which is one high yield ETF that's about three times the dollar price of JNK, which is another one, has a lot more volume because the option activity is very big. BKLN, which was a leveraged loan, had a big trouble. There was a huge put strike done, 22.21. As you near that 22 price on BKLN, the decline accelerated. It went through and bounced back. So I think the options markets are, again, becoming the tail wagging the dog. That's where I see the problem. So I think selling volatility is very careless, and that's where you got to be careful. Peter Cheer, thank you so much for being with us. Always wonderful having you. Peter Cheer is head of macro strategy for Academy Securities, based in Connecticut, but Connecticut, but joining us here today in our 1130 studios. Well, we all know that the Chinese economy is slowing, but what about the health of the Chinese credit markets? We had two big borrowers just miss uh, payment deadlines this month. So to help us dig into what is going on in China and the credit markets, let's bring in the birthday boy himself, Damien Sassauer. Damien is a chief emerging markets credit strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York. So Damien, on behalf of Lisa and I, happy birthday. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Can you no, give no, us a... No, 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 no. <laughs> okay, go. Give us a sense of, is this the beginning of a, of a credit, you know, real problem for the Chinese economy, do you believe? Well, I think it's an extension of what we've seen in 2018. I mean, last year was a record year in terms of defaults. We saw roughly 18 billion U.S. dollars worth of defaults in China. Um, in, including um, Wintime Energy. I mean, Wintime Energy was the second biggest defaulter. That's one of the two today that people are talking about, right? Them and China Minxing. China Minxing's a big name. They've issued a lot of bonds and a lot of dollar credit also. So it's, an, it's actually interesting. And what, what I take out of this is very simple. You know, with shadow banking being removed from China and it becoming more difficult to access finding for Chinese corporates, what you're seeing is sort of a... a, 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 a a bifurcation. You know, there are certain companies, right, that the government will allow to default, such as those like Windtime, which are involved in coal and, and non-clean energy, and and others that are just systemic to the to, to the economy, and they're just going to do everything they can to support that, that that company. And so you're seeing that bifurcation play out today. One thing that I'm wondering is how much do international investors have to care? And this is, is sort of, I mean, a little bit... Uh, I don't know, selfish or self-centered uh, in terms of the developed market. But I'm just wondering, how much of this is dollar debt versus local debt? Well, I mean, let's the first question, how much should we care? We should care a lot because as goes China, so goes a lot of the things in the world that we care most about, right? But to your point, how much do we care about these two specific issuers? Probably not so much, even though China mentions a pretty big um, issuer of dollar debt, a lot of the holders... People believe, and it's difficult to prove because the data is just not as transparent. Are actually Chinese corporates who have had their their money offshore in dollars buying back that debt. So you don't necessarily know if it's U.S. retail or even U.S. institutional funds who own that debt because it's just it's not as transparent as you would otherwise like. So the the verdict is out as to who's getting hit with the move today, but that's kind of where we are. So, Damien, how much of the credit issues that we're seeing bubble up? You mentioned 2018, we started to see it, and now we've got these two big issuers. How much are really issuer-specific, or are they really representative of, boy, the economy is slowing here, and we're going to see more of this? Yeah, no, I mean, the economy is definitely slowing down. Um, I think really what it 
it is more a function of is not so much growth patterns or inflation or some of the you know kind of fundamental um, metrics that we look at to 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 assess the health of the Chinese economy. It, it, it's more a function of you know just dislocations in the market with shadow financing being pulled out from under the rug. I mean, I don't think the markets really understood the extent to which shadow funding in China, just how that greased the pipes and loosened the economy and allowed borrowers to extend leverage and do all that. I mean, it was a massive, uh, it was a massive way to grease the pipes domestically. And now that it's gone just overnight, I think the market's having a little bit of a difficult time reacting to that. One thing that I'm struck by over uh, the weekend, there were signs that perhaps trade negotiations are breaking down in addition to negotiations over the government shutdown, et cetera, et cetera. The response has been sharply negative in the UN, right? We've seen the UN weaken considerably versus the dollar. Uh, now we're going to have to start talking about where the thresholds are, where people start to get concerned. Is this a good thing for Xi Jinping or a bad thing that their currency is weakening? Uh, it, well, it depends really where we are in the negotiations. But look, I mean, we've had this conversation many times, Lise. I mean, in my opinion, U.S.-China trade negotiations, I don't think we're going to have any. They're, they're going to be ongoing for years and years and years, specifically whether, whether where it relates to IP. And I'm sure Mr. Sweeney over here can talk ad nauseum about what that really means for us. But you know, from where I sit, it's all about rate differentials. The correlation between dollar yuan and the difference between U.S. and Chinese interest rates, the correlation has been very tight over the better part of the last three years. So as go those rate differentials, so go dollar yuan. And what we saw at the beginning of this year was a rebound along with all risk assets. And we saw dollar yuan rally through the month of January, had a huge month. But now after uh, after the new year and, uh, you know, people are back in the office, I think people are taking a, another look and, and just fundamentally. OK, yeah, it's but, but, not but, looking just like take, take a step back. What does this practically mean for companies looking to finance themselves, either in China or the government itself? What does this mean for its economy? Well, I think if you look at the fact that you might need to pay more to borrow money in China on a nominal basis relative to the U.S. for the first time since 2009, it's a pretty big deal, right? I mean, I'm talking about the fact that you will actually need to pay more to borrow in dollars than you were than you would in, in China yuan. And this, remember, China's growing at seven percent, six percent plus. In the U.S., we're only growing at two and a half, three percent, right? Yet you're going to have to pay more in terms of yield here than there. It just doesn't make much sense. It doesn't reconcile. But that has much more to do with the fact that um, you know rate differentials are moving in the other direction, and quite frankly, I think they're going to invert this year. So. You know, how does the world credit market view China right now? I mean, is this something that is still you want to put money there? Uh, you know, I think it's really, again, it's going to be idiosyncratic. There are certain markets, there are certain issuers where, you know, their, their balance sheets are healthy and fundamentally there's reasons to be um, to be bullish about them. But, you know, yeah, no, I mean, I think sentiments is deteriorating. I mean, we got a lot of data this week, Paul. We see inflation data coming out. We see trade data coming out this week. Overnight, we saw reserves, which barely budged. Go figure. Um, and so the numbers you mentioned, Lise, you know, what are the big numbers that, you know, she and, and, and the Chinese are looking at? It's that $3 trillion in, in FX reserves that really doesn't move so much. Yeah. It's that psychological seven handle on dollar yuan. I mean, those can't both exist in a happy place without, you know, with, with what's going on between U.S. and China trade talks. Damien Sassauer, we love having you on, especially <laughs> on your very special birthday. Damien Sassauer is Chief Emerging Market Credit Strategist uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. Check out his research. It is fabulous.
Well, Amazon.com has certainly been in the news for a variety of reasons, one of which was the long-anticipated HQ2. Where would they put their second headquarters? And they chose Queens, the borough of Queens in New York City. Uh, lots of economics going back and forth there to attract Amazon. But we've got other news, and just kind of goes to that Amazon story, and it goes to the corporate headquarters and where companies are allocating their corporate headquarters and what kind of incentives local municipalities are making to lure those corporate headquarters uh, to their markets. Um, to walk us through kind of the Foxconn story and any kind of light it might shed on the Amazon story is Austin Carr. Austin is a technology reporter for Bloomberg News. He joins us on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Austin, I know you did a long story on Foxconn and uh, their move to bring headquarters to Wisconsin. What did you find? Uh, we just found that uh, there was a great disparity between how this deal was talked about leading up to when it was signed with Foxconn in the state of Wisconsin versus how the deal has actually gone thus far. We spent months reporting this for Business Week's new cover story, which is on newsstands now and online right now, um, in, in which it sort of details uh, how it has fell short thus far in terms of job creation and even some of the conditions inside the factory that they've set up there for the early operations in the state where the, the pay has been low, uh, where people feel like expendable, where they've been making an aggressive push towards more automation, which likely means a lot of their roles will be obsolete. And so just overall, the sort of ROI for this project, creating more factory jobs, hasn't lived up to those expectations, which raises a lot of doubts about these types of mega subsidy deals, which have become increasingly common. What kind of oversight was there and enforcement action with Foxconn as it became clear that they were unable or unwilling to fulfill some of the promises that, that they had made? So, so the way that this, this deal is structured is... Uh, it's it's all staggered staggered uh, to hiring and capital investment expenditures. In other words, uh, in exchange for about four point five billion dollars in subsidies, depending on how you calculate it, the company has to invest about ten billion dollars and create as many as 13,000 jobs in the state based on a threshold of targets. But the first year, uh, they, they had to create as many as 1,040 jobs. They actually only created 178. So they missed that by, if you depending on, how, again, how you're looking at it, about 82% for the maximum threshold. So there are agencies in place to sort of monitor this deal. Their argument is that, look, they didn't create the jobs, they didn't get the tax credits. But as we detail, not just in this piece, as well as a newsletter that just came out for our fully charged uh, Bloomberg newsletter, uh, on the tech team, um, you know, there are other ways that taxpayers have already been footing this bill, whether that's through putting the deal together, monitoring its progress, um, as well as overall just sort of some of the upfront investments that local municipalities have been been making in, in the range of hundreds of millions of dollars. So, Austin, you mentioned four and a half billion dollars in subsidies from the state of Wisconsin. That's obviously big money, uh, particularly for the taxpayers of Wisconsin. What recourse does the state have or the taxpayers have if these corporate uh, entities don't fulfill their end of the bargain. Yeah, th their argument is basically that, um, you know, again, if they don't meet these job creation targets, if they don't hit their capital expenditure targets, that they won't get the tax credits. Uh, but I think ju just as risky could be if they do actually hit these targets. Uh, a Wisconsin Legislative Fiscal Bureau analysis actually found that the return on investment uh, for this billions of dollars by the state won't actually come until 2042, meaning the state will be on the red in this deal until 2042. That's decades uh, before they're going to 
going to see a potential return. It's also going to be difficult for budgeting in the years ahead. Again, if the company, if this deal goes perfectly, the state could be writing paychecks to the company essentially as high as $312 million per year uh, for these job creation targets. That's that's a lot of money that, that, that just sort of, that is built on this premise that a lot of these jobs are going to create this ripple effect, this multiplier uh, economic ripple throughout the state. So one could argue, okay, this was a fail. This Foxconn deal ended up being more expensive for taxpayers, whatever way you slice it, uh, than it was worth. But it might be just an idiosyncratic case. Are there other cases of similar incentives that have had similar outcomes? So uh, the the comparative example uh, that that I would cite uh, to not just Amazon HQ2, but as well as uh, Foxconn's move into Wisconsin, uh, New York State and uh, the city of Buffalo actually actually struck a $750 million deal with Tesla to open up a solar factory uh, in uh, just 10 minutes south of Buffalo. And that deal has been going on for years and years and and had very similar connotations. You know, this big talk of job creation, uh, you know, big... uh, you know, uh, press events for the groundbreaking ceremony. But then, as with most of these deals, there's often changes. The company is under different pressures. Tesla, especially, is under just given their automotive pressures. Uh, they've put some of their solar ambitions on the back burner. And of course, who has to sort of pick up the slack for that? It's the taxpayers as the job creations sort of slow down, as it takes years for the company actually to set up its factory. Um, we spent months reporting that story as well. And uh, we actually got to visit that factory in Buffalo, and vast majorities of it were still empty. Uh, we, we compared it to sort of an empty Walmart supercenter. Um, so that just raises, you know, again, doubts about these types of mega deals and whether they actually, these companies live up to their promises. Austin Carr, we love having you. Thank you so much for being with us. Always fun. Thank you. Austin Carr, technology reporter for Bloomberg News and Bloomberg Business Week, joining us here in our interactive brokers studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.